Hollywood, 1946. James M. Haynes, the postman always rings twice, finally receives a long-awaited English-language adaptation. The third time the story has been given the silver screen treatment. Is the third time a charm? That's certainly one of the things up for discussion tonight, but so is The Power of Three. Kane's novel, of course, features one of classic noir's most memorable central trios, Frank, Cora, and Nick. And their story is an essential example of what happens when you get caught up with the boss's wife. It's a simple setup that lends itself to stories well beyond the confines of noir, but within the genre, makes for especially potent thrills, danger, and often evolving power dynamics. It feels right at home in film noir, a space where characters relish the opportunity to inflict misery upon one another. You can set it on ice, you can set it in a roadside filling station in Buenos Aires, or in a hall of mirrors. And it makes for such a killer hook that we've got a two-part episode ready to roll. Let the sparks fly and hope the big man doesn't get wise too fast. It's time for night one with The Boss's Wife. What's your new book about? A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. Hate is a very exciting emotion. I hate you so much that I think I'm going to die from it. What have we done to each other? What will we do? I'm not apologizing for what I did. I'm apologizing for what I didn't do. Silencio. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Pelzer, joined by my friend, Kristen Johnson. And tonight, the postman rings a third time. Then we cool our heads with Noir on Ice, two films with quite a lot to dissect. But we're going to be looking most closely at how passion and danger emerge when an outsider suddenly finds himself romantically and financially caught up with a couple. We're going to kick things off on very familiar territory with Hollywood's first adaptation of James M. Cain's classic, the Postman Always Rings Twice from 1946. There's one thing we could do that would fix everything for us. What? Pray for something to happen to Nick? Something like that. Cora. Well, you suggested it yourself once, didn't you? I was only joking. Were you? Yes, I was. Well, had you started to think about it a little? Maybe I said it, but I didn't really mean it. Well, I say it again now, and I do mean it. Postman always rings twice. 1946 adaptation. This was directed by Kay Garnett. Stars John Garfield, Lana Turner, Cecil Calloway, Leon Ames, and Hume Cronin. Based, of course, as we all know, on The Postman Always Rings Twice by James M. Kane, and it's been adapted here for the screen by Harry Ruskin and Niven Bush. Uh, in a story we are getting very familiar with, Frank is a drifter who hitchhikes up to a roadside filling station operated by Nick and his much younger wife, Cora. Cora and Frank fall into a torrid romance right under Nick's nose. Then she prods him into helping get rid of her husband, permanently. After a failed first attempt, they succeed, but not without attracting the suspicions of the district attorney, 
And of course, we know by now exactly how this is going to come to an end. Well, we finally hit, uh, years later, um, our, our first Hollywood adaptation, the third adaptation of, of Postman Always Rings Twice. Um, this had been dismissed for adaptation by Hollywood for years. Um, and it was only after Double Indemnity came out did, they, did studios finally feel like they could move forward with this. Uh, so, uh, Fred, uh, have you seen this adaptation before? Uh, yeah, um, I'd seen this before. Uh, it definitely, the first time around, I enjoyed it more than this time, I would say. I think. Was this your first experience with the text at all? Yes, 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 novel, yes. I've I've yeah. never read the novel, so um, it's still still true. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no, this was this was a revisit. It was really interesting going back to this after having watched the other versions. It was. It's been so fascinating doing that. And I'd I'd seen I'd read the book before I watched this version. So so I'd already come out of it with some. Not in fact, I think I I watched this a good deal after I read. The, hmm. the book um i'd read it back in college and i don't think i watched this for like at least a, at least four years after um so it was a bit removed but now watching everything all together it's uh it, it really is totally different seeing all these different choices uh uh in in how to adapt the same story uh tay garnett any any familiarity with with the director uh no i'm gonna look up i mean the name had, does not ring. I had bells. just watched um, not long ago a a great pre-code film with um, with with William Powell and Kay Francis, One Way Passage that he directed. Uh, one of my favorite pre-codes I've watched, um, and I love I love Francis and Powell, of course. And I thought it was a a really tight, romantic, thrilling little um, uh, little. Uh, pseudo crime story set on an ocean liner. Uh, I I I like that a good deal more than I like I like this, which uh, th that's just got it's like brimming with that pre code charm that mm -hmm. Powell especially delivers it at bringing. Yeah, I haven't watched one way passage. I've watched um, uh, the the thief one, the Francis and Powell thief one. Oh yeah, uh, Jewel Jewel Heist is that it? Yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, and in general, I, I love William Powell. I'm always happy to watch something of his. So, uh, but no, I have not. This is the only Take Arnett that I've seen. Uh, and aside from that other one, same same for me. I think uh, uh, John Garfield. Uh, I think I've seen one or two others of his. I, I mean, mostly I just know him from you know, Hueck killing him. I feel like I'm very underwatched on John Garfield, but I, I flagged this because I. Last year, when we were um, when we were recording uh, for for I guess very very early this year, when we were um, when we were doing our Inherent Vice episode, and I just read Pynchon's Inherent Vice, and it's not in the the film at all, but in the in the novel, he has this obsession with with citing John Garfield movies, um, hmm. and it happens throughout the novel, uh, and. And at one point, he ends up wearing John Garfield's suit, hmm. and uh, and it's just a running gag that's sprinkled throughout it. And I feel like I'm I'm very underwatched in him, but I, I think he's a I think he's a solid presence here. I think he works yeah. he works really well. He's a good Frank. Yeah, a good and friend. he's it's funny that he's he is very much 
of a piece with um, the French Frank, I would say. Frank. Mm, totally. I agree. Uh, Lana Turner? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Lana Turner, uh, when I was growing up for a long time, I thought that Turner Classic Movies was named after Lana Turner. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I I don't know that I was, I don't know that young me was aware of Lana Turner, to be honest, or like probably like was aware of the name, but I don't think. Right. I didn't know who it was. I just knew like Lana Turner is old Hollywood. Old Hollywood is Turner Classic Movies, ergo Lana <laughs> Turner Classic Movies. Um, no, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, no, I've seen her other two big films, uh, Singing in the Rain, of course, and uh, The Bad and the Beautiful. Uh, are you, have you seen Imitation of Life? Uh, I have not. You know, very, I very good in that. I like I like that movie a lot. Um, yeah, I actually have not seen any Douglas Sirk. Oh my goodness! Oh well, I don't. I guess we won't be covering that here. But um, but but I love some Sirk. Sure. Yeah, I no, I it's it's long been on my watch list, but his his films I feel like only turn up occasionally. Mm. Yeah, imitate I think Imitation of Life was the one I started with. I'm a I'm a written on the wind uh fan first and foremost, mm. but Imitation of Life's real good. Um and and Lana's great in it. Yeah, so I honestly I th- I feel like this has the makings of this Based on the based on the pedigree here, I feel like I should like this a little bit more than I do. I'm and and I still like it. It's just I'm maybe it's it's the watching all of these adaptations back to back that that I I admire I admire the choices the earlier ones make a little bit more than than here. Yeah, I agree. I the it, it definitely leans into the pulp of of the material, you know, the going back to James M. Cain and, and all that, but there's something very pro forma about this film, re- revisiting it, especially in the midst of watching just a bunch of femme fatales uh, movies all in a row. You're just sort of like, yeah, okay, like this is, it It just doesn't have, I don't know, a certain je ne sais quoi. Yeah, I guess that's, and it's like, I, I don't really have anything to fault Lana Turner with you made a you made a very good call out um, previously about how each of these adaptations of, of Postman seems to put a different character as mm-hmm. the one that draws your eye and it's and there's no doubt about it that that, that if we previously spotlit uh, Nick and then and then well Gino uh, uh, not Frank uh, but this this is Cora's show right mm-hmm. this is. The and and Turner draws the eye and and the camera does like her, but I I, I still feel like, uh, I, and I I love her wardrobe in this. I think that yes. just the choice to put her in white in almost every scene that she's in, she she's striking. She leaves an impact. Um, I I feel like that's that is good costuming. Well well done. Uh, uh I don't know, it, but but how does she sit? Compared to some of our other our other choras, how does she sit compared to some of our other femme fatales? I still stand by yeah that that concept that this is this is the chora version of the story, and I feel like we get her point of view far more. Um, but I also I think the. It's interesting. I think she feels more 
middle class, upper middle class here. The I think the Hollywood glamour kind of detracts from the actual text. I think in the other I, two versions, I get her desperation more because I'm like, yeah, this isn't a great spot that you're in and you have ambition and it's tough. But right now I'm like, you seem to be doing pretty well. Uh, you know, it's not it's not ideal, but it, it just doesn't sell me as much on the fact that she needs change. This is the version that I had the hardest time buying one, her her um, relationship with Nick. Mm -hmm. um, and and then in turn, uh, it, it trickled over into, I guess, by by virtue of how much I felt like they were, there was no way I could see them ever having become a couple. Mm. Uh, and not out of desperation, not out of her, not out of her making that choice. She she never felt like she would have been in that position in the first place to me. And then in turn, that trickles over. And by comparison, uh, Frank seems like like uh, a great way to jump ship, but but it's still there's that that Cora and Nick dynamic of or sorry that Cora Frank dynamic of two people that never feel like they should be together. Mm -hmm. Um, so you you only can rely on on romantic tension. That's like everything's got to come down to that to me for that to work. Yeah, yeah. This is definitely the one where I. I... I, I, honestly, this is the one where I also felt the least that I bought Cora and and Frank, right? That like, yeah. I mean, obviously different times, et cetera, et cetera. But this one, especially, it feels like him pursuing her when she has no interest. Like even just in, on the performance level, it kind of feels like, and and on the text level, it feels like at a certain point, they're just going to go, and now they're together. And you're like, okay, I guess it's, it's that kind of movie. So that's what's going to happen. And I think it's interesting watching this on the heels of of Mildred Pierce, where you mm. have a where you have a a a woman that's trying to build up an, a restaurant or wants to mm. yeah. want, wants to like make something of herself in this in I mean ostensibly in this capitalist society right. and and leave her mark and and Cora chooses darkness. <laughs> Right, but also it's like but, but, we never see Cora actually making something or something. Like, right? Like, I think that Mildred Pierce comparison is really interesting, in part because Mildred Pierce does make something of herself, and Cora just sit, tells us, "I want something more." But what that you know, and she wants to keep yeah. the, the hamburger stand, but, but she's like not, she's not putting in the work. No. She's putting the work. I think it's nothing. It's the other the other Coras. I mean, definitely the um, Ossession. Like she is running that business and she is putting her blood, sweat and tears into that restaurant. 100%. This is a totally different beast than especially a session. So it's like, it feels unfair to make comparisons in that regard because they're just tonally so different. Very true. Uh, but, and this is far, far closer to, um, far closer to the last turning. Both of them are far more beholden to the text itself. Visconti right. takes his own liberties and, right. and, and that's, and that's great. He, he, I think he makes very smart decisions in that regard. And yet, despite the fact that this and the both adhere so closely, they, they, they still land really differently. You know, I think there's some of the French realism, right, plays into that. And this is, this is much more of the pulp, both pulpy and also Hollywood. You know, everybody's beautiful all the time and well lit and et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, just tonally, there's something 
I feel like this this one seems a little bit more pleased with itself for its cruel twists of fate, right? Like this one feels not that not the other ones don't have that too, but this one especially has the like it it really emphasizes the you got away with murder, but you're being convicted when you didn't commit a crime, like twist. The um, I'm not a fan of the ending here. I'm not really a fan of um, yeah. The, I mean, the ending the, like really tries to spell it out for you. Well, and the big be- and the beginning does too, because it starts out. What what does he he say right to the um, to the uh, DA when he's he like spells out his philosophy? Uh, mm-hmm. Like the the mo- this movie needs to to announce its. It does not trust the audience. No, um, and it, and it's particularly hard to end on that on that button. Um, walking to the right the chamber you think she all. knows i didn't kill her pray for us uh, it's like oh this was a romance are you are you sure that that's what this was about uh, two murderers who who killed her husband and stole his business this is a romance mm-hmm. uh, I, yeah i don't know it's broadly it's the it's it's so familiar especially to us because we've been inundating ourselves with it uh right. but uh but it's it just the way that it plays out and there's all sorts of small like the broad strokes i think all they're all the same but like it's smaller things and it's like the way um the way that nick's character is handled i just don't i don't love i mean he's he's like reduced to being a penny pincher and mm-hmm. like jokes about the lights and um, and then he brings up, uh, and this is the failing on the script part, I think, but just like the out of nowhere, we're going to Canada, where mm-hmm. where thing things that are just too hard to swallow, like why, like oh, you mean you've sold your house and you've never thought to mention any of this? <laughs> right. I mean, like, I kind of, I do kind of believe that that he's that he's just kind of plowing ahead but yeah i mean he is he is the thinnest version of that character right both of the other two versions have much more lived in uh identities for their their nicks and this nick is just kind of like he's the most cartoonish for sure yeah Um, yeah yeah um, it's all just kind of fine yeah exactly i don't know um if uh if if you are, this is obviously most people's entry point to this story too, which, right. which, um, which is, uh, really, really interesting. Now that I think I would, I would certainly steer anyone toward the well, one is short, very quick read. Uh, um, and, and, and I think also, um, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's not my, my, platonic ideal of a hard-boiled text or anything but but it does the job and it moves fast mm-hmm. and 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 sets up a classic story that we clearly are revisiting over and over and are going to continue uh at least one more time yes uh, so how about uh how about this as a uh as as the boss's wife dynamic as our as our three as our three characters uh all bumping up against each other uh yeah there's just uh, not i feel like there's not a lot of chemistry in this version it's it's uh, you know i think we need to feel that rush 
and spark and thrill in order to buy and go along with the ride of, and now we're going to kill somebody. Yeah. Um, there's no, uh, the, I mean, the biggest, the biggest defender is that there's just not that, that passion to me between, between Frank and Cora, right. Which would be enough to fuel a lot of bad decisions, uh, reckless decisions, murder. Uh, but, but also, uh, uh, yeah, Nick, Nick, well, I mean, I think Nick and Frank, I think there's like a little bit of parsing to do there. Right. I will say that this, that this version did do the best on selling to me why Frank would initially be like, okay, I'm going to stick around for a minute. Right. Like the way that it, that the film presents Turner, you're like, yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, she gets a, she gets a, a, a nice, uh, a, a nice entrance. Um, right. I mean, it is like, and... yeah, it is, it is, it is iconic in and of itself, just the way that the lipstick and then, the, um, and then going up the body, you know, the whole thing. Yep. So like that, it did a very good job selling me on, but yeah, the long-term, like both of them buying into this conspiracy part of it. I, I was not as, again, I can see, I can like the movie tells me on why Frank would find her attractive but it did not sell me on the, and then the electricity between us just kept bringing me in further and further um, to the point that it becomes a doomed romance, right? Like that, that just wasn't there for me. Right. And ultimately it's the least interesting of the, the three adaptations that we've seen. It's the least interesting in terms of exploring that, that Frank and Cora just aren't right for each other. And yet they mm -hmm. keep getting pulled back and Frank belongs to the road and Cora just wants him to be something that he can't be, uh, and uh, and and yet they're they're still trying to make these, they're still getting involved with each other and making these decisions as if they could ever possibly last when, right. when you also, know that they're they're not meant to. Right, but it's also so like this, even Frank's like man of the road thing feels more told to us than seen, right? Like hmm. with the two films, we get time with him after the murder when he leaves on the road and we spend like, but here it's, we, we it's, cut to a week later and we skip the whole cat training. Yeah, we do. This is, this one's so, um, it feels like, it feels like it, it doesn't trust the back end to be, mm. uh, to simmer like it should. So it wants, it wants drama in the courts and in and in the legal process and it and it wants to create yeah, more that's there. Um and I and I I'll, I like Hume Cronin's kind of lizardy lawyer. Yes, that's the um, most he, fun he, enjoyable part of the film. Totally. Um like like did it need to be like that? Maybe not, but it lent more it lent enjoyment to what where the film was clearly trying to work overtime to to have plot. <laughs> And and so I appreciated his performance. Yeah, and uh, what's his name as the uh, opposing attorney? Leon, Leon oh, Ames uh, is always a yeah yeah a welcome yeah, and reliable presence. You know, like he's he, I don't think he's ever not that I've seen a bunch of his stuff, but I don't think he's ever blown me away. But I've always been like, there's a guy who knows what he's doing. Um, so that helped me. You know, I actually enjoyed. The court scenes more than I usually do because the two of them are are uh, holding down the fort here. Oh yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> oh, and I'm not, now I'm jumping ahead a week and thinking about what a very crazy court scene we have coming up. Oh yeah. Uh, oh my. Well, court scenes are. I, I I do I do feel your pain, Fred. They are they're often <laughs> real drags. Yeah. So I I don't know. Um, I I I think that a good uh, a good boss's wife dynamic as we as we start to examine these there's got there's got to be tension coming from multiple angles mm-hmm. uh, and 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 you feel i mean between gosh between um between cora and nick you feel you feel nothing they're just so they're they they so they're are, so are aliens yeah. to each other they, i wasn't invested in the stakes and and i don't feel the danger right the like courtroom stuff resolves itself because at least with um you know both the french and the italian version keeps the pressure up pretty consistently but this movie really thinks that we are invested in cora and frank and are like yeah and then once the murder stuff's caught up done with you're just you just care because the relationship's falling apart i'm like i don't care because of that what i care about is the you know slowly lowering Democles' sword over their head but you've kind of taken that off the table until the XPI shows up and tries to blackmail him. And and Nick, because Nick is not Nick is not dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's a fool, but not like a sympathetic fool. He's not mm-hmm. he's not Michelle Simone, um, where 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 you feel some humanity for him. Um, right. This is just an, a a really annoying guy who who uh, with. With I I'm I did not look this up, but I'm pretty sure the greatest age discrepancy. Uh, oh, probably feels, yeah. Feels like it between I, uh, I believe between it. him and Cora. Uh, it's just hard. It's hard to swallow. And then we don't even get a good we don't get a good employee boss dynamic either. It's, it's yeah. So there's no there's no cost to Frank. Like the moment the minute that Frank meets Nick, it's like he, he's a goner. You know, I mean, it's they they. The, the relationship is written off the minute that she walks into the the scene. And and so, yeah, that's the other thing is there's no cost to him to murder him. It's just besides the abstract cost of murdering a human being. Yeah. It's, it, it just doesn't quite pull, th- it doesn't quite uh, hold up no. to the other, other two adaptations we've, we've watched. Uh, and I, I, I guess I'd kind of expected this because it's even even when I'd seen this before, it didn't stand out to me as a as a classic from noir. But I I, I think I've I've cooled on it's it so, even more. You since. know, generally it is so foundational to. Mm-hmm. It's important. This, yeah, no, da- no doubt about it. And but the actual and, object itself is is not that much. Although I feel like this is something that the Coen Brothers must have watched like once every five years or something. I I don't doubt it. Uh, and this, but, all of this, for anyone listening, um, uh, this this feels a bit more. This is not a this is not a terrible movie by any means. Um, we're if we're a little bit down on it, I think it's uh, it's certainly in comparison to the other adaptations we've already covered. Uh, still worth worth catching up with. Right, but, it's an uh, important movie. It's just it's just it's just yeah, especially like coming off of Double Indemnity, which is like. That's perfect top so to bottom. There, there's your there's your movie where you have a murder at the midpoint and and manages to sustain a a tremendous amount of of tension throughout the rest of right. it as you watch and leading up to it too. The whole thing. Oh, yeah, it's it's just so exquisitely crafted, and 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 we're 
any any power we get from this for me is derived from the fact that I know the story and I know where it's going, not yeah. not because of what the work that the film is putting in to get you there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. All right. Well. Huh. And now on to uh, a movie that you at least enjoyed more. <laughs> I I did I did enjoy this more. I'm excited to talk about it. I didn't uh I, I may not have loved it, but I think there's plenty of fun things going on with uh with this next one. It's Suspense from 1946. Let's roll the trailer. Okay, boys, take it away. All right, Mr. Martin. Let's go. It's amazing. Oh. You mean the way I look like Frank? No. The way the clothes fit. Yeah, not bad, eh? Uh, you'd better hurry up and change. You've only got a couple of minutes. Yes, sir. Suspense from 1946, directed by Frank Tuttle, starring Barry Sullivan, Belita, Benita Granville, Albert Decker, and Eugene Pellette. Uh, it's written by Philip Jordan, uh, who, uh, who, by the way, is uh, from Chicago, worked at the mm. Goodman Theater. Uh, that uh, that's kind of cool. It's uh, a fun so, detail. Plot: Barry Sullivan. Uh, he plays Joe Morgan, who arrives in L.A., uh, lands a job selling peanuts at an ice show. He's As one does. With, uh, like, of, why? Why wouldn't you? Uh, and I, ice shows in L.A. I guess. How, I guess they're in demand. Soon impresses the producer Frank, who happens to be married to Roberta, the star of the show. Joe pitches a daring set piece for Roberta involving a wheel of knives, um, and his own pursuit of the skater is no less dangerous. When Frank gets wise, he takes Roberta away for the winter to their cabin, only for Joe to show up there. Frank attempts to do away with Joe, initiates an avalanche, and that seems to be that, of course, until Roberta begins to suspect Frank isn't buried in the snow after all. Back at the ice show with all this, um, with the specter of her presumed dead husband and a very dangerous Joe, we get a sense for why they called this film Suspense. Um, that's a, a lot going on. It's a lot going on here. And it's like not even a lot going on until uh, like halfway into the movie when all of a sudden everything starts really snowballing, uh, literally. Uh, this is... I, I'm going to preface this because I, I did I got some real enjoyment out of this, but I I don't think this is a great movie. But this is kind of a fun movie. Uh, I I, I mean I definitely agree that it's not a great movie. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of fun with it, but I'm glad you did. I think this <laughs> is sort of the reverse of the uh, uh, framed. Uh, I yeah I think, you, from last I think episode. You're, you're spot on there. There's. Uh, it's no classic, but there's just there's a lot of weirdness. And starting starting off with it is, is weird. It is weird. This this is our least femme fatale of our of our probably of at least the front half of our season. Well, it's uh, it 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 I think qualifies only on on a technicality that that Joe ends up getting murdered for some by, reason, not by. Roberta, but by his his ex who has followed him to LA from New York. 
and and he is kind of uh, he's kind of awful too but he's just kind of awful in general yeah he's not a good guy but no. yeah I, that's just part of the yeah i mean my thing with this thing is that the well let's just kind of do some more right. if you haven't watched this movie it is worth a watch it is an odd duck um, um i do like barry sullivan in it i, I just the the movie doesn't know what to do with him the, no barry sullivan gets i mean instead of uh in, instead of in framed where 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 he got to be kind of nicely uh villainous in a more supporting role he's he's center stage here and and that persona still suits him uh right yeah he's just got like a bit of that socio reptilian sociopath about him where he's just as like on a, on a dime the light goes out of his eyes and he's like i'm doing what i have to do yeah <laughs> like, yeah i believe it you'd kill a man this is this is why I've, I've, we we spent so long last season on on the private detective that we were ignoring another uh, then uh, the other major uh, male trope of uh, of of noir and that's the drifter and mm. we're we're getting an awful lot of drifters especially this, yeah, this episode too. is the yeah is the drift drifter doubleheader we've had quite a few already and we'll have a few more um, before things are all said and done I mean basically. It, Next, the next two episodes are also the next episode also is a, a pair of drifters. Yep. Um, yep. Um, one, one of them nautical. Uh, <laughs> he's I he's a drift. He's a nautical drifter. Uh, <laughs> a little little preview of what's to come. He, he, yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no the um, and I thought Belita was great. I was legitimately like, she should be in more movies. Honestly, I'm a okay. So I'm a, I'm a sucker for for movies just being like, screw it, we're gonna do a performance now. And and in this case, it was on ice. So I'm not like a big uh, ice skating guy that that I could have kept her left. But like I thought, her off the rink performances were also very good. Like she she held her. It was not you know we've seen some dire stuff in that context. And but she she held her own here. I think she was good. Um, Eugene Pellet, who who um, this mm. was. Always uh, a fun he's, presence. He's always a fun presence. Um, he he's been films ranging back to the silent era, including the uh, the one that should not be named. But, Won't hold um, it against him. Uh, yeah, I think that was early early on in his his career. Uh, but uh, but this was his last his last film. I and I, as I was reading up on him, following this um, follow, following this movie, he he quit Hollywood because of um, because of uh, the uh, uh, atomic age being ushered in. He bought up. He was so afraid of of annihilation. He bought up a big compound in eastern Oregon and and like had uh, a canning factory there and and farms and stockpiled a bunch of food and built like a fortress for himself and and hid out for a few years and didn't ever come back to Hollywood. <laughs> Wow, well, I think I've, he came back to Hollywood. Didn't act again. Didn't right. I think he eventually gave it up before. I yeah, I knew this was his last performance. I did not know that story. Although that also <laughs> connects us to our next episode. And uh, uh yes, it does. The the fears that are supposedly uh motivating uh, one of the characters. Yeah. Uh so uh, I, I don't know. This is this, this is a weird movie, and uh, and it's and it's so all over the place, and it and it gives I, I think certainly on our topic of the boss's wife, um, it gives us a, a very strong dynamic to work with here. Yes. Uh, we, we get... Especially because he is like, she she is not interested, right? I think that's what's the most interesting thing is that up until her husband dies, she she doesn't want 
she's at best conflicted, but she is not like on board drawing him no. in. No, he's the one that pursues them to the cabin. A, a stalkerish degree. Yes. Um, I mean, even or- even within the like lowered bar of 1940s masculinity and like what is a healthy demonstration of of interest this is still pretty like even in that context i was like this is going pretty far much like postman we get early on we get uh um joe's philosophy spelled out here and and this one is is very much it's the i'm either flush or i'm or i'm broke kind Mm -hmm. of mentality toward the world so this is a man who's all in he's either Mm -hmm. He's either going to be the the peanut vendor, or he's going to um, he he's going to try and seduce him, his way to the top, uh, or to to take no not take no for an answer. And uh, and, uh, and I mean, like, then... if the movie was smarter about it, there could be an interesting connection between his like capitalist success and his fa- you know sort of a nightcrawler. American Psycho kind of thing, but it's not. Mm. It's not there. I, I don't think the the film quite knows how to assemble the parts that it has. Yeah, I mean, I, was, uh, I think it just comes back to the script. Like, I think this was that writer's first screenplay, and it this, shows, and it has a lot of problems. This was apparently the most expensive uh, film that was made by uh, what's uh, Monogram? 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 Yeah, my monogram pictures. Um, and the, the producers, Frank and Maurice King, uh, had described it as a psychological treatment of crime and punishment. So they clearly Grr. had lofty ambitions here. I don't know. I liked how much everything in the kitchen sink this is. There's performances thrown in and how they 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 go out and they get some a little bit of location shooting in and, and some Lots of big uh, crowd scenes and multiple big ice ring performances. Uh, and, and I'd been thinking about the the ice rink noir. There's not there's there's not a lot of precedent for that, but I did not too long ago. I did watch To Die For, and there is some nice ice oh, ice yeah. skating noir sure. in, in in there. That's what ends uh, the movie. Um, in, including uh, in, including an excellent final shot. Uh, yeah. uh, a very a very very good final shot. Uh, with and Gus Van Sant knows what he's doing. Certainly more more so than Frank Tuttle and company know how to quite assemble this yeah there's just like uh, but, stuff that happens off screen or information that's withheld that just i don't know if they ran out of money or what but it just made it i was like did he did he come back and then kill him what uh was was then, somebody actually following them or is this a you know at, at times i was like is this a diabolique situation is this is he... he um so he he chopped him up presumably and put him in the secretary desk right right i'm i'm assuming he had to be chopped up because i don't know how else there's a cat in there too there was a cat in there. So then, um, but so then I was like, is he is he losing his mind? And this is a you know telltale heart situation, like which th- this is this or is she fucking with interest- him. I love the comparisons between some of the uh, between our our episodes too here because because much like a, one of the films we're going to get to next week, this is a case where there's a character who is who is presumed dead, who mm. is kind of like looming, coming back and looming over the proceedings. Right, Which, we have clarity there, and there's just no do. clarity here. <laughs> there is not. And, that's just, um, and the same thing with, like, the reason that he left New York, which they build up into this big plot point, and then it was bad. And you're just like, what I, does that mean? And, and I, I have to say that talking through this, I'm realizing how this is not really a good movie, but I still... You know, that doesn't it. matter. If you had fun, then you had fun, <laughs> and that's that's okay. It, it, 
You don't have to apologize, Tristan. Um, this is a safe space. Uh, sometimes it's okay to like dumb things, <laughs> and yeah. and this is a this, this is a dumb thing. Um, but... <laughs> but with some beautiful ice skating, you know, I was thinking about it. I feel like one of the reasons that the ice skating is is it apparently a big hit probably was that it's like a semi-legitimate way to watch women in in very revealing outfits at, at for the time. You know what I mean? That's fair. Like, maybe that's maybe 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 so. Although we don't get oh, it's not like there's a lot of other examples. Uh, no, but I was just um, like I was just yeah I was just trying to like contextualize it to be like yes, ice skating for the masses. And 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 again, this is going to get proven again in our in our next week. Before we started this this whole series, I like half jokingly was like uh, we we should do a thing on carnival noir, and and there really is a continuously comes up things where there's like like uh attractions like this um and i think it's just entertainment of yeah. of the era but but it does we're we're gonna get to it next week we've obviously seen it with things like nightmare alley um there's there are there are routinely these um that this kind of like sideshow or entertainment venue noir that i don't know pulls together vendors and and yeah. performers and uh, all into one space. I don't know. It keeps coming up. I also wrote down because it, it entertained me. I feel like the there's something about the way Eugene Pellet um, delivers his, his his that last line of he should have stuck to his peanuts that felt very King Kong like to me. <laughs> um, and sure. mourning this, the I don't, maybe just from like. A performance uh, like a showman standpoint, <laughs> mourning the fall of this giant or this man that reached too high. I don't know. Um, <laughs> this, this is a silly movie. It's a very silly movie, but uh, you know, it's got some, and, and I will say, I thought the last, the final act, it leaned into a more expressionistic form and and played with the shadows a lot more. And like kind the, of the, the the sword rack and yeah yeah it all kind of livened up a little bit in the in the last stretch there which which I I was grateful for yeah I was worried real worried about the the early goings of of this um, and and I, I I got increasingly entertained as I went along so I don't know on a on a boss a boss's wife dynamics I mean there's actually like even in the cabin there's like a domestic scene with them where he's like uh, he, uh where where um he's making pancakes uh, and he's, he's got his apron on apron uh, but at the same time they're... he keeps being like what the fuck are you doing here <laughs> you know I think what's interesting about a lot of these two is that the um for the boss's wife is that he the 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 drifter becomes the right hand man right like he assumes a place of power close or a, a place of yeah power close to the heart of the operation um it's not just that he is like the hired help he is the hired help who becomes trusted you know and, and i think we had to touch this a little bit with postman always ranks twice that there he's we don't really feel that relationship that strongly between between the two men but in a lot of these other uh, boss's wife situations uh, there is as much emphasis on that i mean one of the things i love about gilda is that there is as much emphasis on that 100 <laughs> percent. no and i think that uh, like this also this gives us some good um push and pull between employer and employee he's he clearly earns his he ascends quickly but he like he he makes a case for himself and you yeah. uh I, I i feel like you buy it enough um and 
Um, and, and, you know, until you get to the point where the boss is going to snipe you from on top of a mountain. And then causes an avalanche and kills himself by mistake, but doesn't die until you come back and kill him off screen, question mark, and chop up his body, die. question mark. Like, why did they, they, they hide his face when he came back? What was the point of that? Why would they not show his face? It's very odd. It's very, it, it, Explain it, it to me, Tristan. It doesn't make sense. It's just kind of dumb and whatever. Just roll with it. Fair enough. I feel like it, it, it brings up an interesting question, though, because like, like when this, this has clearly got a little bit more budget to it and it's aspiring to a bit more, yet it still feels like it's cobbled together like a no-budget noir. Yeah, yeah, it does. If I mean, and probably sense. part of it is just the, like, you know, as a set of producers and a director who's used to, used to working on Poverty Row or Poverty Row-esque films, and, and yeah, they just kind of went, all right, <laughs> this is how we make a movie, by, like, stretching that $1.1 million as far as we can. Uh, um. I liked um, one of one of Frank Tuttle's before I'd watched on uh, on Criterion. This Gun for Hire um, uh, with uh, with uh, Veronica Lake, yeah. Mm. Um, uh, I, I like that. It was good. It was a good. Movie. I think it's it's a stronger movie than this is. Yeah, let's say like based, again based off that like final stretch. I'm like I'd I'd be willing to watch Tuttle take another shot at it. I I would put a lot of this on the script personally. I I, yeah, I think I the think... script just is not. It's not managing inform like a very basic clarity level. It's not managing information well. It's, um, it's probably partly that, and partly um, partly studios wanting some big like they want ice they want um, ice rink set pieces. They want mountain. I think it's studios wanting um, wanting a big set piece in the middle with the the avalanche. Wanting their ice rink drama and and uh, and their numbers there, and probably shoehorning in a few elements. Sure, it's still I, like it just I don't know. There's some like very basic dramaturgical issues with the scripts that I think kind of sink the whole thing. That don't feel like the kind of things you have to compromise to make an like an avalanche. Um, true, but anyway, like I said, I'm yeah, I'm I'm like willing to give most people involved in this the benefit of the doubt. Ultimately, I. At least on the on the topic of uh, of our uh, our our boss's wife, I actually I like the dynamic here, even even though there's not there's there's no passion between between um, Joe and Roberta. There's not that it's just it, it's just him being really creepy. Yeah. Um, but so but the movie at not, least kind of knows it because she's not into it, yeah. right? Yeah, the movie's not pretending otherwise. Um, but, but I feel like it, this, this does the boss dynamic pretty well. Right. Um, and, and really honestly, does about the boss and wife dynamic all, all decently. Yeah. Um, so, so I'll give it some credit in the, those departments. <laughs> right. It just does it at the cost of like not really being a femme fatale within that dynamic. Yeah. Um, Which is fair. Cause you know, most of the times people are happily married and then if some employee showed up and then started pursuing you romantically and you kept saying no, that's, that's fucking bad. <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. And what do you know? He turns out to be a bad dude. Sure does. But you know, uh, we've got some more examples to uh, take a look at shortly. At least we'll be talking about it shortly. You all get to wait a week before hearing our thoughts on it. Yeah. Before we uh, we wrap up, there's anything else that you're looking forward to, uh, especially in dissecting this uh, the boss employee or the wife employee, the boss wife dynamic. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think already we kind of touched a lot on just like the, the fundamentals of you need, 
that tension in all three directions in order for it to work. And uh, I'm I'm curious to kind of bring that that framework to our discussion of the other two films. We're gonna wrap things up then for this evening and uh, and jump right into our traditional segment, what's in the box. So, Fred, uh, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, what's something you've recently watched that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? Uh, yeah, so my wife and I got to go out and see the 4K restoration of Stop Making Sense in theaters, which oh. was wonderful. We saw it at the music box. Uh, my wife and I danced to um, uh, Naive Melody for our, our first dance at our wedding. So there's there's a lot of uh, affection for talking heads in this household. And uh, I'd seen it before. My wife hadn't, but we had gone to see... Chicago used to have a Talking Heads cover band called This Must Be the Band. Um, and once a year, they would do a live, full live recreation of the Stop Making Sense show. Um, like costumes, projections, dancing with the lamp, the whole thing. So anyway, we'd cheatedly seen that. I'd also seen the movie before, but it was incredible seeing it in 4K. The Focus Polar uh, working that show is a superhuman as far as I'm concerned, what he's able to do um, live. And then uh, in in like pretty tight, I mean, like shallow depth of field pulling focus live. Um, it, it's, it's phenomenal. And uh, the performance that we saw literally had people dancing in the aisles to the point that there was like a, a dance pit happening down in front of the stage. And then we got very nervous when people started climbing up on the stage and we were like, that is a $50,000 screen. Don't touch it. Like the music box doesn't need you doing that. Fortunately, no damage was done to the theater. As far as I know, people got back down off the stage, but they did keep dancing for the entire back half of the, the movie. Pretty much. That's amazing. I also saw it um, when in the, in the release in IMAX and Oh my God. And I'd seen it before. And it's just, it, it's just such a, a wonderful object. Like, yes. like I can't imagine another concert doc ever ever hitting like that it's it, it, it's i think like so much of it is is demi right like he's <clears throat> enough of a stylist to uh be able to put together these images and, and capture what everybody's doing in a, in a gripping fashion and, and even work with the band's aesthetic but also he's enough of a humanist to still care about like not just the core band members but the touring band members and even like what the crew's doing, like the whole thing is 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 got his his light touch throughout. Also, more so than any action film, any any kung fu film or or wuxia or whatever, this feels like the most athletic movie ever. People do not stop moving. I mean, to be fair, they cut a lot of the in between stuff out, but people just do not stop moving. It is pure sweat. You can just feel the the sweat pouring off of David Byrne when. And 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 to me, like like when first peak hits during life during wartime, when they're mm. everyone's running and mm -hmm. he's doing laps around the stage, mm -hmm. that's that is movie magic for me. Yes, agreed. Love it. Agreed. So um, probably by the time you're hearing this, the the restoration tour will be done, but still worth picking up and watching um, the A24 release. What about you? Uh, let's see. Uh, first, first, a quick. Uh, uh, a quick thanks for the recommendation, Fred. I watched Timekeepers of Eternity. Uh, what a trip. Really liked it. 
um, just some some Gonzo editing magic there, and uh, like like I don't know how you think of that, arrive at that. It, it was it was um, fascinating, and and I realized my own limitations in watching it of approaching avant garde film that. I uh, and to no fault of the experimental side itself, but because it's it's built around a traditional narrative, um, I I kept getting drawn toward the narrative itself at the expense of like looking. As, I mean, it was all it's all one and the same. Right, because it like, is. It's, it's, it's not like it's at cross purposes, right? Like it is fully integrated with the narrative. So I think yeah. it kind of wants you to be doing that. Yeah. Oh no, totally. I'm just, I'm so used to like when I see experimental films, just kind of like turning off my brain mm. in a way that, that just lets myself move to move into the realm Purely of experiential rather than, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and yet here I'm like, I'm like still, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping up with the content and it is, it's, it's, it's fairly conventional as, uh, otherwise as you know as much as a Stephen King right but that, I think that's what's so exciting about it is how it takes conventional elements and expresses them in exciting new visual ways such as like the the blind kid the eyes getting put like just some of that yeah. stuff I'm like I will I'm still thinking about it weeks later yeah uh very good recommendation really um really liked it uh How'd you cut anyone it? else yeah uh thanks um, I also want to shout out, uh, I'm a, a big Raul, Raul Ruiz fan. Um, I think he's one of the more underrated directors um, out there. He like, I feel like he just hasn't gotten the same kind of pantheon recognition that a lot of, a lot of other great auteurs have. And especially because there's so, there's so few auteurs like as unique as him doing like this, this, what, like through the eighties, which, which, um, to me, becomes a little bit of a an a tour dead zone in some ways. Like we're we're beyond the '60s and '70s heyday. Um, he's he's got a wonderful film called City of Pirates, one of several I've seen from him from the '80s. But but it's just so dreamlike and and transportive. And I feel like he gets that kind of dream, the flow of dream logic, better than almost any other director out there. Uh, I. I really recommend Three Crowns of the Sailor, also, uh, but but City of Pirates was I I watched recently and absolutely loved it. Just a a great way to spend uh spend two hours kind of like drifting off into into this um, uh, hazy dream realm. Um, so that's my pick for the week. Yeah, I saw your Letterboxd review and it already put it on my watch list. So fantastic. Well, closing things out. Thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation, the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. Join us next time when we're back with more bosses, more wives, and more importantly, a whole lot of Rita Hayworth. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend.